Hey everyone, Tom Salemi here. Welcome back to the Med Tech Talk podcast. Our guest today is Nick Damiano. Nick is the co-founder and CEO of a company called Zenflow, which raised $31.4 million in a Series A. Zenflow is developing a new treatment for a benign prostatic hyperplasia. It's a really cool med tech story. Comes out of the Stanford Biodesign Program, so we'll get into uh, that whole process in this podcast. But Nick has uh, got a unique perspective on uh, on running a company and on raising funds. So it's, uh, it was a really good conversation. I enjoyed speaking with him, and I'm sure you'll enjoy the interview. Before I let you go, though, I did want to remind you that the MedTech Conference is happening on May 31st in Minneapolis. We will be uh, populating the agenda with speakers this week. So go to MedTechConference.com, check it out, and uh, see what we're putting together. It's going to be a fantastic day. If you know you're joining us and you want to uh, save a bit of money, you should register in the month of March. And uh, while you're at it, you'll you'll be getting a, a, a discount for the early registration. But make sure you use your MedTech Talk code to save another hundred dollars off the uh, off the registration fee. So we hope to see you there in Minneapolis. Now let's get into this conversation with Nick Damiano, the co-founder and CEO of Zenflow. <laughs> Nick Damiano, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. Great to be here. It's uh, it's great to hear a uh, a Series A financing like this one, thirty one point four million dollars for your company, Zenflow. Uh, it's a a unique company with a uh, a really cool technology that I want to get into, but I always like to find out a little bit about, a bit about our guests before we get into the uh, the business side of things. Nick, how did you find your way uh, into medtech specifically? Yeah, so I uh, was a engineering undergrad at Stanford, um, sort of a generalist, was doing some some biomedical stuff, a little bit of entrepreneurship uh, coursework, and uh, a bit of software, and jumped around a bit early on. Uh, a couple startups ended up uh, yeah, doing a lot of different things, eventually settled on, on MedTech a few years after coming out of my master's program, and worked for a few companies here in the area early on as an engineer. And um, yeah, then decided that was the the industry to be in. I actually then um, after in, in about 2012, I uh, went and started a company in the health IT space, but it was still med tech focused. I was going to ask that. Yeah, healthcare IT seems to be drawing a lot of uh, a younger talent to it. I don't know if that was an appealing route for you. Yeah, I mean, we we saw a need in med tech uh, with the amount of uh, time and money that companies were spending on sales and support. We had uh, developed an app for reps to support cases remotely. Uh, the company's still doing pretty well. It's out there being used by a few of the, the bigger med device companies. Ended up handing it over uh, and going back to Stanford uh, a few years after starting it. How are, uh, how are the two sectors being viewed by young people coming into healthcare broadly? Uh, med tech and, and digital health I'm talking about. Is there is there a clear division between the two? Is there a one or the other sort of uh, feeling about it, or is uh, is there seen is it seen to be kind of just a different shade of, of the same color? Yeah, I think health IT has become a bit of a hotter space. Uh, it's more probably generally accessible. People that are getting into healthcare, it seems like a more approachable angle. Um, so it's it seems to have drawn a bit more attention than than medtech lately. But then again, there are programs like Stanford Biodesign, which is where we we came from, that are making medtech um, interesting again for a lot of people. And there's I think hundreds of programs around the world. We actually just had the Stanford Japan Biodesign Fellows in our office yesterday. Oh, really? 
Um, so these kinds of programs, I think, really are reigniting the, the passion for med tech in a lot of the, the younger generation, which is good to see. Yeah, no, and it sounds like a great practice. And we've talked with folks before who have uh, sort of done the, the shadowing and, and, and really looked for those, uh, those med tech opportunities to build companies around. So what was yeah? What was your experience like? Uh, how did you come up with the, uh, the the technology that is now Zenflow? So we went through the usual process in Stanford Biodesign, which is really needs focused innovation. So we went into the clinics and ORs in the beginning of the fellowship and just looked for clinical needs. Our year's focus was urology nephrology, so we were mostly in the, in the urology clinics and. We saw a lot of men, actually almost every man who came in had some kind of issue with BPH, where they were getting up at night multiple times, they were um, really anxious every day, just anything they did, they, they had to run to the bathroom urgently. And they didn't like the solutions that were out there. So you had drugs which weren't that effective and had side effects, then you had surgery that was invasive and um, had the, a high risk of things like sexual dysfunction. So men weren't too keen to do that. And we, we saw a, a good opportunity to have a less invasive but more effective minimally invasive therapy, which is what got us on this. We had a concept we thought was going to be better than what was currently being offered and um, eventually went through the whole need screening process and had a few other concepts we liked for other needs. But this one won out as, as one that we thought could make a big difference for patients and also had a path to market that was somewhat reasonable, although it is something that is fairly time and cash intensive, which we knew was going to be tough in the, the current environment. Mm -hmm. What was your initial response when you uh, learned you were going to be doing urology and nephrology? Were you, did you think those were good areas or were you a bit disappointed? Yeah, good, good question. We, I think all of our team was, was hoping for something like cardiology, which is always the space everybody likes to be in. Uh, it's where a lot of the, the med tech energy is focused. We, we were a little bit let down, but then we, we found out pretty quickly that it was, there were a lot of needs and it was a really interesting couple of spaces. Um, the docs have been great to work with. We've really enjoyed working with urologists, a lot of great personalities. Um, and they're generally pretty open to new technology too, which has been, been nice. So yeah, I mean, it was not that exciting at first, but now we're really happy to get into it. That's funny. Yeah. We heard a similar story from Michael Ackerman, who of course went on to found and sell Oculi that when he first learned he was going to ophthalmology, he was disappointed. So, uh, Maybe that's a good sign. Maybe it's good too. Yeah, interesting story. We're actually working now out of their former office. Oh no, kidding! That's good karma. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, did you 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 doing the 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 rotation? You you identified the need. Did you did you have an, a technology in mind that ultimately became your uh, Zenflow Spring system, or did you identify the problem and then go out and try to find the solution uh, and start with a clean slate? Well, the whole idea with biodesign is that you don't have a solution in mind up front. So we didn't have a solution. We we found the need and wanted to really understand the need. So we, we talked to a lot of urologists and patients and read up on past therapies and research that have been done and used that to drive what we call a need specification, which is really the things that we thought the urologist and patient needed from a solution, what would be the ideal solution for this. And that drove our concept. So we then went into the design thinking process, the, the brainstorming process, and had this really clear picture of the need in mind. And that that led us to select for concepts that, that really had a chance of addressing that full clinical need. And then it just naturally came out of that. So we had 
a lot of different concepts. We prototyped a few and, and tried them out and ran them by urologists. And this one ended up, um, after a, a long process, winning out. How did, uh, how did you know or, or when did it become clear that this uh, process, the solution that you developed, could, uh, could actually be a company? Probably not till after the the Biodesign Summer Extension. So in in, in June the fellowships end, ends, and we we've been a little bit slow cutting our knees down. We thought we had a a few concepts that were promising, so we we didn't want to eliminate any of them. And then we still had a couple of different possible ideas that could have been companies when we finished the fellowship. But then so Shreya, my co-founder, and I got the summer extension funding and had three months at Stanford to work on it and and really focus on this concept. And we were going to use that time to see if it could be a company. So we went and built more advanced prototypes. We did some cadaver studies. We did more user interviews. And coming out of that, we we still weren't entirely sure. So we, um, knowing that it would be a, a bit of a long pathway, we wanted to see if we could get any traction raising funding over the next three or four months. And then we said, okay, well, we'll do this full time for that time after we left Stanford. We went to my garage and just started working from there. Our garage. Wow. How quaint. Yeah, it's good to have, have a Old garage. Old <laughs> And uh, then within about two or three months after leaving Stanford, right before we were ready to go and start looking for consulting gigs part-time, we, we started getting some funding. And um, Y Combinator was actually our first funding beyond business plan contests. And it was sort of an unconventional route for medical device companies, but uh, we wanted to give it a try. And once they funded us, we, we really had to go and, and do it. So that was what uh, got us to decide that this is going to be this is going to be a company. We're going to give it our best shot and um, try to take it all the way. Uh, I wanted to ask about Y Combinator. How did you uh, come to get an investment from them? And, and have they invested in, in MedTech before? Or is this their, would, would that have been their first time? They hadn't before. So we, we were told in Biodesign that it was going to be close to impossible to raise funding. So we went out there and just said, we're going to look for as many different angles as possible. So we applied for every business plan contest and every grant. And I mean, those usually, the grants usually take a long time and look for every possible investor. And my prior company, which was a software health IT company had applied for Y Combinator and we didn't get in, we got an interview. So I, I had that on my radar and uh, I looked at their website and there was something about an interest in healthcare startups. And they, there was a sentence that said, I think medical devices, seem interesting or something like that. And that gave us some hope. So <laughs> we, we threw an application in, not expecting a whole lot because they had never funded any med tech company before that and went in for an interview and it went, went pretty well. And then at the last question, they asked how much time and how much money to market. And I gave them a really aggressive answer that was never going to happen. And they came back and said, wow, that's a, a lot of time and a lot of money. <laughs> so, so I, I told Freya, we, we, we were doing pretty well. I think we lost on that last question. So it's a good try, but I don't think we got in. But then somehow they they still liked us enough to give us a uh, spot in the batch. So went in and did it. And it was, it was actually a great experience. It was good to hear some of this um, standard tech knowledge apply and, and think if we could apply it to med tech and a lot of it a lot of it i thought was pretty applicable interesting oh that's great and and you've also worked with the stardex accelerator and uh the rosamond institute uh did they play roles in the creation of the company or funding or how did they become how did you become involved with them or, or vice versa 
Yeah, Stardex we also applied for about the same time and got in there. My last company had been in Stardex too, so I was familiar with the program. And a lot of Stanford entrepreneurs land there uh, regardless. So we really, we wanted to to get all, give ourselves a shot at every resource we could to help us along the, the early going because we knew it was, was going to be tough. So yeah, being part of these communities with Y Combinator, with Stardex, Roseman Institute, who we just had a meeting with and, and they've been incredibly helpful since we had that meeting back in mid-2014. Uh, and then with the Biosign Alumni Network, it's been extremely valuable to have have all those networks and all that support um, for uh, yeah, especially first time med tech entrepreneurs. It's it's a challenging world and there's a lot to figure out. And it's been um, I don't know if we would have made it without the support of all these communities. That's nice that you have that uh, that backup. And and you're right, it is ex- extremely challenging. Uh, so let's let's kind of just get into what the spring system is. How, how does it work and uh, what is its, is its function? Yeah, so we. The device itself that goes into the patient is a small nitinol implant. It's a coil implant that's completely atraumatic, and it's a single wire basically folded into this coil. So it just goes in and gently pushes back the prostate. Instead of doing things like burning or cutting the prostate or shooting things through the prostate, it's it's less traumatic. And um, besides that, it's also deployed through what's called a flexible cystoscope. So instead of a rigid scope, it uses basically something that's not much more painful than a, a Foley catheter. So it's a much um, less painful device to deploy. It's, it's done in an easy office procedure. doesn't take very long. And uh, without much trouble for the patient, it, it, the urologist pushes this little nitinol super elastic implant into the urethra. And then it, it sits there. It's meant to be permanent, but it can be taken out if it needs to. Um, so that's that's basically it. It's uh, just a simple solution that um, we think takes a different angle on the um, on the condition. And what we've seen so far, it looks like it can be, it can be less invasive and and likely more effective than other treatments out there. That's amazing because it, it obviously nitinol is is a well known uh, material and one that's uh, being used in medtech more and more. Uh, you would have thought that this uh, concept would have been. Uh, well, someone else would have come up with it before. I'm sure you've done your intense IP uh, due diligence and uh, and found nothing else out there. Yeah, we had an FTO search done with our our round, so we we have good confidence that we're we're free to operate. Uh, there was there were some counterintuitive things about the concept, which is why I think nobody's gone this route before. Uh, there were stents used in the past, and they didn't work well. There was one stent on the market that sort of ruined things for for all stents going forward. Our device, we don't like to call it a stent, but it, it draws comparisons to a stent. We figured out if we could have a lower profile stent that, or stent-like device that that could get around some of the complications of stents, especially if you could take it out if you needed to. That could be um, just lower risk in general. And we had to innovate on the, the design of the device and then the method of deploying it. It's also a hard anatomy to deploy things in accurately, which was also part of the downfalls of stents and other devices. So yeah, the innovation really is the specific shape of the device. And then the method of deploying was even a a bigger challenge to solve because you really have to get it in there 
within a millimeter or two every time or else you're going to have problems. So how did you move forward with uh, early clinical testing? Was that all done with the Y Combinator money and some of the grants and you have funding from NIH and uh, NSF as well? Yeah, so that's essentially what it was. We, it, It's tough. I think a lot of the trouble for just starting a med device company, especially out of a, a fellowship like Biodesign um, for entrepreneurs that are, don't have an industry network that can just go to and raise a lot of funding right away is that it just getting through those early stages. So getting the animal studies done or getting devices built when those can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars and you have nothing. So yeah, Y Combinator helped that. We were able to go at demo day and uh, we weren't sure how much luck we'd have raising funding against all these tech companies that have no FDA burden and already have a million in revenue. Um, but it, it went pretty well. We actually saw a lot of investors that were interested. We raised about three and a half million between the this small round right before Y Combinator, then a, a round at Demo Day that was bigger. And that got us through our first clinical studies. So we went into mostly into New Zealand for our study and did a a small set of patients just to get some data on the the implant. We tried to be as lean as possible. You sort of have to be getting there and and not to overcomplicate the device and sort of went there with a a bit of a um, kludgy device, but something that worked pretty well. So once we were confident that it was ready to be in patients and we had the animal data to back it up, we went in and did these cases and fortunately saw really good results. So we're happy with the, the way it went. We were able to raise more funding on the back of that. Eventually, the Series A, once we had some of the longer term follow up in, and now we've gone back and, and improved the device uh, even more beyond that and uh, are going just now getting back into clinicals and really excited to see how it how it does. So how many patients have you uh, tested this in and where are you in in uh, devising your, your next clinical uh, clinical program, cl- clinical trial? So it's been 11 patients so far and mm-hmm. uh, mostly in New Zealand. We worked with one of the top global urologists there who's done a bunch of other early stage work. And it's been good to see. Now we have every patient beyond 12 months, and um, it's going really well. So the results have been better than we expected. Uh, There's still room to improve, which is why we've gone back and and reworked the device. But they're overall doing really well. And and, um, so we've already been able to see, see some substantial patient impact from the device in a small number of patients. Now we're going back and doing some bigger studies, eventually going for European approval. Then we'll start a U.S. study and go for for U.S. approval. Um, so that's what's happening this year. We should be back in the clinic in a, a few months. So do you think you'll be – when do you think you'll be in the clinic in the U.S.? Uh, it could be as – depends on, on how FDA sure. reacts. But, you know, it shouldn't be too long. I think within the next year we should be able to go and, and do that. But there's there's a lot of things that could could make it take more or less time. Hi, MedTech folks. We're going to take a quick break from this conversation to tell you about a great webcast our partner RSM is putting on. The webcast is called What Does the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act Mean for Life Sciences Companies? It's happening on Thursday, March 8th at 2 p.m. It's free. It's an hour long. It's for CFOs, controllers, and tax title folks in the life sciences industries. And those who participate will learn and discuss the key tax considerations for life sciences companies, including the corporate tax rate reduction, the research and experimentation tax deduction, 
the ability to carry back net operating losses. It's all there. After one hour, you'll understand how the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act will impact your life sciences business. So you can sign up again. It's complimentary. You can call this phone number, 1-800-274-3978. That is 1-800-274-3978. You can also shoot an email to reply at rsmus.com. That is reply at rsmus.com. We'll also put links to the webcast website on our podcast page. So you'll be able to uh, find it easily enough. Just go on the podcast page on the MedTech Conference website and all the information will be there for you. That's it, folks. Now let's get back into this conversation. Well, and let's finally talk about the uh, the news, which is the, the Series A financing with you, re- which you referenced earlier. Uh, you raised thirty one point four million. You've got uh, capital from Invis and F Prime and Medical Technology Venture Partners and others, I believe. Uh, how did you set out to to raise that Series A? What did you do to prepare the company for that? And uh, let's just talk a little bit about about the process, how long it took and such. Yeah. So when we got into this, we knew it was going to be challenging. We had not seen, we had followed the the MedTech investment numbers and seen that that very little Series A funding was being raised. There were really a, a small handful of, of rounds like this at the most being raised per year. So we, we braced ourselves for a tough process. And uh, one thing we did was go back to our seed investors and raise some additional funding we called a pre-A round uh, to get us a little more runway to go and, and get this round closed. We figured it might take up to a year to get it closed because it's just tough to, to get investment for this kind of a thing uh, these days. So raise some funding to get us through that round. Fortunately, our our prior investors were still really, really keen to support us. So uh, that was good that they were able to to put more money in. Then we went out and and basically just talked to everybody we could find. So it's uh, we we found this approach of just taking more shots on goal has always been a, a good thing in a tough market. If you you know if your hit rates two or three percent and you take a hundred shots, then two or three should hit. And that was was really our our strategy. So we had this group called um, MedTech Venture Partners that came in and and wanted to lead the round. They were a smaller fund though. So they committed a pretty small percentage of the round. We were initially going to raise a little bit less and, uh, they took the lead. They helped us go and, and raise additional funding and then eventually got some, some other VCs involved. Uh, Invis and F prime came along through really random intros. And sometimes these come out of the, the most likely, most unlikely sources. And, uh, yeah, I guess, Eventually, they really liked the company. Uh, we we liked them as investors. I think we were lucky to to see that we got investors that were really aligned with us and and supportive of us to uh, to come in. I think people have to often settle for for not as good investors, but fortunate to both get this round closed, get a bigger round than we had planned close, and get great investors uh, into the company and and on the board. So, yeah, really happy with the outcome. It did take a long time, and it was. Took a lot of meetings. I think I was spending 80% of my time fundraising for, for almost a year. So 
it uh, it wasn't easy. It was it was no lack of effort, but a uh, great outcome in the end. I was going to ask, how many uh, meetings would you estimate that you had? How many pitches do you think you, you, you made out there? Yeah, I've sent my list to a few other entrepreneurs I know of, of investors to really canvas the whole scene pretty extensively. And I, I, I must have gone to about 150 or even 200 investors. Really? That includes small angel investors. And a lot of the, the small ones came in. But if somebody puts in 100K, it's not really moving the needle a whole lot on a, a round of the size. Uh, but yeah, it was it was a lot. And I think maybe at least 50 to 80 VCs in that bunch. That's that's amazing. That's uh, that's uh, it's a great outcome. So you think that maybe your uh, your story sold extremely well, but it it certainly does say something about uh, to your point about having to get out there and, and talk to as many people as as possible. I'm curious. Do you re- do you remember any specific no's that were memorable because they were I don't know beneficial? They were productive. They were instructive, or they were just. And I'm not asking you to name a firm, but just I was wondering if any, any rejection sort of sticks out as as something like oh, I'm, to you that you're perhaps glad that it happened because it it gave you the right direction or gave you a new way to to pitch the company or or something positive came from it. Yeah, there were some investors. I, I don't want to name any names here, but uh, there were some investors that either I'd say went a, l- a long way down the process and then even talked to other investors and and got them excited about joining a syndicate then then backed out or I mean there's one investor that we we were going to bring into the deal that was was very keen to to do a large percentage of the round that we found we figured out was not going to be a, a very supportive investor so we eventually um, didn't go ahead with that deal we decided to go out and, and press our luck uh, getting back out there again when we could have pretty much closed the whole round. So, oh, interesting. yeah, I mean, I think we learned through this that what kind of investor we wanted. We had some experiences with people that we thought would be decent investors, but then we learned more and more they were not the kinds of investors we wanted. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, those discussions really did did help us zero in on what we wanted to to eventually do, who we wanted to have involved, and that. Um, it, it helped us find the investors that that we that we're going to work well with that people could people that could be supportive of us and and bring our company in the right direction because it is a it's an important relationship a lot of people will take money from anybody and I a lot of entrepreneurs that had raised funding from investors they felt questionable about and they've been unhappy with it ever since so yeah I'm glad we we didn't take the easy way and, and just go with the first person that, that came along. I was going to ask that if there was some uh, some thought into the, the syndicate that you, you did build and, and if you looked for firms that brought uh, certain experiences, maybe certain connections, or to your point, maybe it's just working with the, the partners and having those people on your board, people who you, you want to work with and you, and you want to sort of build the story with going forward. Uh, yeah, so we wanted people that could really add operational expertise. I mean, we were as a founding team, we are a little less experienced than the, the typical thirty-year veteran who's who ran a division at some one of the big companies and had a couple startups, couple exits. So we've always tried to surround ourselves with people that could could advise us along the way and, and fill in the gaps in the, the areas we haven't really had the experience before this. And it's the same with with advisors and and investors. So. When MedTech Venture Partners 
came in. We liked them as an investor a lot, even though they were a new fund. Uh, they hadn't been a VC very long. They they had great expertise. So this the team came from this company called Gambro. The whole a lot of the senior leadership team from this company called Gambro that sold for four billion dollars in 2013 is now the, the partnership of this. They also brought in the former CEO of Siemens, which is a huge med device company, and, and just have great operational expertise. And that fit the exact profile we wanted from an investor. Yet it was it was interesting that some VCs we would talk to about syndicating this deal said, well, they don't have any any VC experience, so I don't know if we want to syndicate with them. And that that was interesting to hear because we we didn't care a whole lot if they had had much VC experience. We really wanted somebody that could add on the the operational side. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we we definitely differed in opinion from other VCs on that. We ended up getting people that did have VC experience later on to to lead the round alongside them uh, in Invis and F Prime. So we we got a bit of of everything there, and yeah, I think we're we're well equipped as a result. No, that's that sounds like a terrific outcome. Final question. Uh, well, you already gave the advice as to what what you're telling others how how to go about approaching fundraising. It sounds as if you're you're just telling them to to, to take a lot of meetings and to, uh, to to sort of never give up. I guess is that the principal lesson that uh, you you would give another another young medtech executive? Yeah, I've been uh, talking to a, a number of of other people that are out raising funding now, and I think that's exactly what I've what I've said, and just having confidence and. I mean, believing yourself that it's a really exciting opportunity that should be funded. A lot of people, I think, are are hesitant there because they've been beaten down by everybody saying that that med tech is so tough. You need to to frame yourself as as not necessarily a, a med tech company, even if you clearly are one, like we are, but just an exciting company in general. That's what Y Combinator told us: is if you're an exciting company. It doesn't matter that you're a medical device. Sure, there's the FDA burden and and so on, but you can still have a a great outcome for for patients and for investors, and you really have to believe that. You go in with you have to go in with confidence and and tell your story and and you know work I guess work to refine the story to the point that you you can really convince somebody that this is something to jump in on. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of the advice we had early on for fundraising, um, a lot of the the help we had refining our pitch helped us get better at, at closing these deals. And also, I'd say, as I said a little bit earlier, don't just take anybody's money because they will, if you find find the wrong investor, they'll make your life really difficult. And having a great investor can add a, a lot of value beyond the money. So, yeah, I would, you know, just, just tell your story, be confident and try try a lot of angles, um, but focus on the, the good investors that you really want. That would be a great place to end the interview. But I did have one really kind of housekeeping question. When do you bring in the, the payers? Have you had those conversations yet? We're starting now. So mm-hmm. I think it's it's important to get on that early. A lot of companies wait till too late to start it. And then maybe they find out their reimbursement situation is not what they would hope it would be. Mm-hmm. We're we're doing some work now with a consulting group to to be sure that what we are assuming about reimbursement is is correct, and then taking the next step and engaging the payers once we we have an initial lay of the land. So we're we're starting early. We're still a couple years from from the U.S. market, at least, and uh, we're already starting on this because we think that's uh, reimbursement moves slowly, and we we want to be sure we're on top of things well in advance of being on the market. 
Terrific. Well, it's a great story. It's uh, it's wonderful to have a, a big Series A like this again. That always generates excitement for everybody. And uh, we look forward to uh, tracking Zenflow's progress going forward. Thank you for taking time to, to share your uh, your experiences. Thanks, Tom. Really appreciate it. All right. Well, that is a wrap, folks. Nick Damiano of Zenflow, thanks for joining us on the MedTech Talk podcast. MedTech Talk podcast listeners, you know the drill. If you want to help us out, give us a ranking in iTunes. That'll help others find the podcast. Do subscribe to the MedTech Talk podcast and tell your friends to do the same. Shoot me an email or reach out to me on Twitter. My email is tom at healthag.com. That's the word health, followed by the letters E-G-Y.com. Healthag is the producer of the MedTech Talk podcast and the MedTech conference. You can also reach me on Twitter at MedTechTom. Finally, don't forget, May 31st, we're having the MedTech conference in Minneapolis. If you're planning to attend, save yourself 100 bucks. Use the MedTech Talk code when you register, and uh, we will knock that $100 right off the price. The uh, speaker list will be going up this week. It's going to be a great day. You should join us in Minneapolis. Take care, everyone. <laughs>